to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To God we owe this duty and allegiance and love and to the neighbor for God's sake. This is what living is all about. Living as the free in the land of the free, which is the kingdom of heaven. And we live as free and holy and happy in our holiness. You happy, beloved, ready to meet with the holy God continually in the worship? May God bless us in the meeting and bless us as we would receive the gospel news of our salvation and our liberty in Jesus, a liberty unto holiness. Let's continue to sing uh, the praises of God in sweet communion, Lord, with the 138. We celebrate this in the worship and also as we partake of the Lord's Supper called Holy Communion today. The five stanzas, 138. wonderful comfort of a psalmist who in many ways was distraught. Psalm 73 is Asaph's lament about the apparent favor of God to the wicked and his own apparent hopelessness and demise and wretchedness. But he found communion and hope with God in the sanctuary as we do and he knows that he's in sweet communion with the Lord. And even though he's a sinner, He finds this sweet communion with the Lord. You find that, beloved? 
Look what the psalmist found. He found in the counsel of God, eternal decree, that he would be led. And afterwards, after all of that's said and done here, and all the living and the dying and everything in between, he's going to be led to glory. Afterward, he'll be led to glory. God will receive him there. That's the biblical truth of the whole counsel of God, which God has uh, revealed to us and now especially in Jesus. In him, in whom we're chosen, Paul says in Ephesians, we are chosen and blessed with all spiritual blessings from that fount of every blessing, the electing decree of God. So we need not fear. Though kings and queens die and though tyrants may rule and it seems like the devil's in charge and everything is upside down from the way you would expect God to rule, God is good. He's on the throne. Let's remember that today, beloved. Let's remember that today as we hear the word of God, as we participate in the supper, actually, but those of us who are waiting to do so and eager to do so one day, as we together partake of Christ by faith. This is what we're all about, showing off the praises of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth as it is in Jesus. The truth that you are God, we know this, we are assured of this. And there is this wonderful assurance such that even if it looks as if everything's betraying your counsel, denying a denial of the fact of your reign. It's true that you are God and there are no other gods beside you. This truth we love, knowing in our hearts, knowing in our conscience, knowing from the great and elegant book of creation and knowing especially from the book of books, even the word of God, the Bible, that you are God what a sweet knowledge it is. For this is the one word that you reveal, that you are over all things as king, and yet you are with the people. You are with a commonwealth. You are with a land of Canaan, a heavenly kingdom land in all the world, and from that world you're calling this kingdom to be, and you're confirming that kingdom as yours gathering, defending it, preserving it. This is the church of Christ. Thanks, Lord, that you've made us this people. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. We have everything in him. As he even speaks through the spirit and the word, all things are ours because Christ is God's and we are Christ's. And so there's this amazing peace we can have through faith, being reconciled to you, and knowing that all things are working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his electing and determinative and relentless purpose. Lord, what peace we have now. What could assail us? What thoughts could distract us from the thought of Jesus the thought of God, the word, more than a thought, the word spoken, and more than just a word spoken, but a word incarnate. This is how in these latter days you've shown that you are God. You've spoken in these days by your son, and 
This is what the law and the prophets all testified of. But here we see incarnate and as a fulfillment of all that you've ever purposed, the one word of God, your son, and you will have him have the preeminence that through this revelation of his glory and humility, and now in his coming in glory soon, you yourself would be given all the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through that revelation of yourself, the triune God of our salvation, in your Son, Jesus incarnate. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we thank you for a congregation that can gather together and be used of you to gather others together out of the ignorance, out of the sin, out of the mire of humanity and fallenness, and also out of the quagmire of a church that's largely gone apostate. So many don't know any more those even in Reformed, Presbyterian, and whatever uh, um, Orthodox churches there were in the past, so many don't know anymore the basics. They've gone for the mess of the pottage of the world and pleasing it, and for doctrine they've substituted their own traditions and norms and their tolerances. And Lord God in heaven, we wonder why you tarry because your bride has forsaken you and become an adulteress. Lord, this also we know is, is our problem. As we're here this morning, we are those who so quickly make friends with the world. And we are the adulterers and adulteresses who've renounced faith for the mess of pottage that the world is, the nothing that it is. How foolish. And Lord, we're sorry. And we pray today that each one of us here may come honestly before you and in this worship confess our sins. May we do that now, Lord. We thank you, Father, as we confess and as we pray, Lord, search us and see if there be any wicked way that we haven't confessed and may be hiding. And you answer our prayers. We thank you, Father, that as we prayed, oh, forgive us, for we confess Jesus, not just sins, but the Savior. And you do forgive us. You lift off the burden of guilt you inspire us with hope that we shall be freed from even our besetting long-term entrenched, died-in-the-nature sins by your Holy Spirit. This is a new day. This is the day that you've made. Our confession is of the King who has died for our sins, but he lives, and he lives forevermore, and we in him. May this congregation continue to celebrate forgiveness with the church of all ages, every nation, tribe, and tongue where Jesus is claiming his own, where the blood of Christ is cleansing anew, his blood-bought ones on Calvary's tree and applying that to them through the gift of the spirit and faith. God bless us. Bless this church. Bless sovereign grace. Bless us in our communion, in our life together, the catechism and studies that begin and are renewed formally again, we pray, may we be taught, may we teach, may we learn the truths as they are in Jesus, 
May this be a no-nonsense congregation, even as at the same time we are full of joy, full of happiness, full of the wonderful hope that knows that you will be with us in the coming season and always. Bless, we pray, that this joy, this truth may be known, and we may be the pillar and ground of it today, word and sacrament, in our fellowship together, in our learning, what we know already, but which is so deep, we would learn it again and again and again. In learning, Father, may it be for our drinking it in, our taking it in, our having that truth be ours and even our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now 449, the three stanzas. This is of a people that's been filled and would open its mouth wide to be filled all the more with Christ's spirit and grace, with Jesus himself and his truth, because we love him. And he's our life, our fullness, our joy. Three stanzas, 449. Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to the book of James. As I was uh, contemplating the sermon last week on Proverbs, looking in files for notes that I keep about all of the books of the Bible, I was 
struck by the fact that I haven't preached many sermons on, on Proverbs. Well, when I come to James, it's also the case that I haven't preached too many sermons on, on James, which is the New Testament Proverbs. Am I avoiding something? You wonder that always as a minister, avoiding maybe the practicality that's taught in James. I think not, and I think it comes out that we would be Proverbs and James Christians in this church, no matter what aspect we consider. We want to be practical, pious Christians. But certainly this is the the theme of James, a practical faith, something that's displayed that can be seen. So let's read in that light of the theme of James, practical Christianity, James 4, and we'll read the first 10 verses where the apostle James asked the question, where do words, wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. As far as we read the word of God, may God bless it to our knowledge of God and the practice of our faith. And I want to draw your attention especially to the first verses of of James 4, Questions asked, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And then this part of the, the, the verses of verse 2 and through 6, about having and having not. Look at this. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulterers. Uh, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And, 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 I'll, and I'll stop there. I want to focus, though, on this idea of having as Christians and not having. And James cites this as maybe the problem of problems Amongst, uh, among the ones he was writing to in the first century. They, they had everything in Christ, and yet they were fighting. There were all kinds of problems. They needed to be told about true religion. They needed to be told, now, you watch your words. Watch your words. It's a whole chapter there. 
And also, now you display your faith because it is the case if you have no uh, fruits in your garden of Christianity and you have no works to show that you are a true believer, then your faith is questionable. In fact, it's dead. And here he addresses a problem apparently among the Jews converted uh, to Christ of fighting among themselves and unrest. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this sermon and the Lord's Supper of how much we have, therefore, but how much we live as though we have not. Because right before us is going to be displayed that symbol and seal of the body of Christ and those, that symbol of his, his blood in the wine. And it's right here. And the wonderful truth of these means of grace and the sacraments, too, too is that there is a reality conferred upon us by faith in the Spirit working through what we see. That's as real as receiving earthly food into our mouths. But here's my problem, maybe yours too. We have, and we have displayed before us, and we have the preaching, and we have one another, but how often we live as those who have not. And James cites the problem about not asking and asking incorrectly, and we'll deal with that somewhat. But let's consider the haves and the have-nots. And first of all, what a great distinction that this represents of the grace of God that God makes the difference in the world. There's the haves, there's the have-nots. And then we want to consider the sad muddling of the two haves and have-nots. In fact, in the church can be those who have and yet at the same time act as if they have not. And there's this muddled and swampy uh, mixing together of faith and unbelief, and it shows. But then finally, there's a solution, there's an outcome, there's a, a, the great grace of God, uh, James says, he gives more of, more of in verse 6, gives grace to the humble, though he resists the proud. So today, beloved, let's ponder meditatively by the leading of the Spirit and the word that we're going to bring, just what God would have us to have and not have in our whole life, in our church and in our families. By the grace of God, there's a distinction made in this world so that we're called out of this world and we're given everything that God can give. Everything that God can give. Now, it sounds like a bold and maybe exaggerated statement. But when God gives us Jesus, he gives us everything that God himself can give. As commentators have said, God even bankrupted heaven of all of his, its riches in giving what only he can give and the most he can give. And what he would give and what he does give, his son, himself in his son, and the spirit and the grace and all the blessings that go with it. But you think of that. And the Lord's Supper symbolizes and seals that to us. There's a visible reality, a spiritual reality, of which Jesus has said, now you, you want to see this, you need to see this as often as you do this in remembrance of me. 
I know your weakness. I want to confirm your faith. I'll preach to you, but also I'm going to add to that the sacred sacrament and baptism so that there's visibly displayed what God's giving is all about. What a great God he's given of himself. And we have these blessings then and all of these wonderful gifts of God. As Paul rejoices in Peter, blessed be God who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in in Christ Jesus. That's how they begin their epistles, extolling God, the God of, of what we have, of who we are and our identity in the Savior. And you know that, beloved. This is what you have. If you be a believer, if I be a believer, we have that together. Here's what we all have together. Do you know that in your families? This is what we have why we come to church. This is what we have. We have the word of God. We have a savior and we're so rich, aren't we? God has loved us with an everlasting love and underneath he holds us with the everlasting arms. In case you were wondering if you'd ever have arms to hold you, you have God's arms to hold you even right now. In case you were wondering if God's arms are so slippery, are you and your greasy sins are so slippery you could get out of the arms of God? No. But Jesus reminds us in John 10 that his father holds and he holds and, and nobody is able to escape the embrace of God as if we would want to. Of course not. God has held us and he embraces us in Jesus and he gives us his wonderful faith. Whereby, as our catechism and other creeds say, we embrace Jesus. So he embraces us and we him and we receive of his fullness and, uh, and grace for grace laps up on our shore and inundates us and overwhelms us as only the water of life can without drowning us. Though it may rearrange the landscape, may rearrange our minds and and. Show us the real estate that we have in God. That water is ever fulfilling and ever loving and ever for our life and not our death. So drowning in the love of God in the sea of the grace of God is our life. Isn't that beautiful? And it's all because of Jesus. Himself came and this is what we break bread for. We acknowledge he's not just there, but he's broken for us. And he came and he poured out his blood. And this is why we pour out the wine in front of everybody. Because he died and he bled his last on the cross. He gave up the ghost as well. For you and for me, for sinners. Beloved, and we have therefore everything. We have everything in this world. Paul says that when he's writing to the Corinthians, they were wanting all kinds of other things, but he reminds them, you have the world. God gives you the world. Because he gave you Jesus, now he's given you, what is it, icing on the cake, we say? He's giving you everything else besides. So that all the things of the world are yours. They are not those which hold you in bondage, nor do they save you in what the world can give. 
in its dainties and in its, its treats and so on, these creature comforts. But you have the world. You possess all things. It's amazing. Even though, of course, you don't have it in your bank, nevertheless, it's at your disposal to use, to develop, to receive even bad things in the world, in this vain world. They're yours, gifts from heaven, your servants. And as you, by faith, walk in them, you overcome whatever evil there is in the world. And you live and you're not depressed by the bad things of the world, even though they may come and seem to take the place of the flood of grace. There's all this flotsam and jepsam, as they call the, the, the stuff that flows down the streams and, and litters the shore. Beloved, that too is for you and is for me. Because Christ, the thing of grace, is for you. Because he's for you, this mysterious son of God, son of man. All the things, all the things, all the the things that happen in life, all the ups and the downs and the curves that you think God is throwing to you, all the empty hands that he thinks that, uh, that you think he's dealt you, they're yours. And they are in the hand of God. Just look and see and believe. Beautiful thing about it is we get to talk to God about it and all the things, and we could have mentioned a thousand other blessings besides, but we get to talk to God about it. We get to pray. God gives us to know what we have and who we have and that we're forgiven and that we're sanctified and that this thing in life is going to be for my good and there is wisdom for the asking. He gives us to know that assurances of the essence of our believing, the essence of the giving of God, who is as a father wanting us to know that he knows us and wanting us to know just how rich we are. That's what this supper is all about. That's what the preaching is from Sunday to Sunday. That is our Heavenly Father reminding us and assuring us and working and confirming faith. And that's who we are for one another. Do you know your mission? Your mission today, whether you're a member of the church officially or a visitor of the church, a friend of God and a friend of us, it's to bolster one another in faith. It's to turn from the things of queens and of, and of kings and, and of 911s even, these things that are disasters, these things that mark time, these things that remind us that there's so, still some sense of honor in this world. We go from those, and the Bible says those are all lesser things. The good things are lesser things. The bad things are lesser things than the bad things, even the wrath of God that happened to Jesus. And we're called in this church to turn one another to those things. And when we have differences of opinions, We're called to turn one another from our opinions and our rights and our seeking to claim rights to the crown rights of Jesus, who died and yet who lives, long live Jesus. 
And he reminds us in the word of words and by his death that had to be to satisfy the justice of God that the real problem is the terrorism of sin that doesn't just wear a hat, that comes as white and black and red and all kinds of colors and forms and shapes among the sinners all. Well, God speaks to us of that. We need to be reminded of that all the time, don't we? And then we pray back to God. This is what's called prayer, adoration, confession of sin, thanks, supplication, the acts of prayer. The greatest work of God working in us to respond to him and to say something back to him like, I love you, God. And I come to you and I want you to know that. And I know you know that, but I'm going to pray anyway because you tell me to pray. And I'm going to leave this with you, Lord. Just like you tell me to do. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. And I'm going to commit this sin to you that I can't get rid of on my own. And Lord, I pray that you would release me from its bondage and turn me from all that evil. Says so something good and excellent. Fill me that my life may be full of praise. Now that's by grace. And James the Apostle and the Proverbist and all of the writers would remind us of that. We'll be talking about that in our Belgic Confession study today. Justification by faith alone, by grace alone. Well, here... We're reminded again that this is, this is by grace. It's the free favor of God. You know that, don't you? You don't earn anything with God. You don't have anything with God because you contributed to him and you gave something to him at the office or at the church or whatever. He gives freely and we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's Romans corresponding with James, which has as its backdrop Grace, and that's why the rebuke to those who confess grace and Jesus and what we have in him, how shameful to deny what you have. By the grace of God, we are what we are. The Apostle Paul was what he was and is what he is, and we shall be what we shall be in heaven. But the world is not doesn't have that distinction. God has not made that distinction among them to be all the recipients of grace, maybe waiting for them to respond as if they had a free will to respond. No, the Bible says it's not of him who wills or of him who runs, Romans 9, but of God who shows mercy. That's what the supper's all about, mercy. And baptism and the preaching and in all the Bible, the gospel, that by the grace of God we are what we are, we have what we have. Now, secondly, I want to point out to you this muddling problem. We, the haves, by grace, can act and do act so often as if we didn't have. Why do 
do that? Why? Why do we do that? That's a shameful thing. We act as if we, we don't have. And then our assurance dissipates. It just gets really thin. Practical assurance. Well, theoretically, we, can, we have, yeah, we do. Sure, we're Christians. And for a long time, you can go on. In the church, maybe you've, you've grown cold in religion. You can say, you know what? It's enough that I do this. It's enough that I do that. What does God expect from me? Oh, what a dumb question, isn't that? Of course, he doesn't expect anything from you. But he expects a whole lot from himself because he's God. And then, of course, the Father expects of the sons the response to grace. But we muddle that all. And there's a spirit who dwells in us and yearns jealously. That is, we have the spirit... And the spirit is, as it were, and this is anthropomorphism here, wanting more of us. Like a spouse that's been defrauded and cheated on. It's so bad, beloved, that the apostle has to call the people of God the haves what they appear like now. Adulterers and adulteresses, hear me, hear God. You're acting upside down. You're acting empty when you should be full. Or you're full of stuff and it's coming out your mouth and I can see all the the stuff you're eating and the, the wine you're drinking and all the things that entertain you, it's just coming out. You adulterer, z, plural, and adulteresses, male and female. And what he's alluding to is the fact that the people that he's writing to who've lost the practice of their religion, who have a form of it now, who have a supper, maybe, who have the preaching, maybe, who have themselves, maybe, who go through the motions, maybe, are nevertheless not Christians on the ground. And they're going to begin anew this Sunday, maybe. The catechism, this past week, the Bible study, a doctrine class, and oh, now we're going to get in shape. And yet the heart's not there. And the spirit is bemoaning the fact. And we need to be told what we are, what we've come in our muddled existence to be, as those who have not. We're so muddled, it's all that seems as if our life is mud and mire. And not only are we confused and we're confusing others, our witness goes, because we're acting not like those who are the light on the hill. We're acting like friends of the world. There's another metaphor that J. 
James uses. Not only have we left our spouse Jesus, but we're friends now with the world. In our unbelief, in our practical unbelief, in our acting as those who have not and who want just like the world what the world wants. And his only comfort in life and in death is not Jesus, but everything else. And if the queen dies, we want her back. And if we're not married, we're not going to be content unless we have someone in the world, just someone, even though she may be an unbeliever, or he an unbeliever. Beloved, this is the muddle we make. And it's even worse than Paul saying in Romans 7, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. That's wretchedness. And that actually is biblical wretchedness. There's a sense in which we have of God, and yet we're always knowing we don't have enough of God and we don't have him enough. And so there, we're, torn, we're torn, aren't we? Well, that's a Holy Spirit work, a sanctification in and upon our flesh so that we're sensitive to the, the sin that remains. But this muddling is such a messing up of things and was when James wrote in the first century and is often today and needs to be reminded to us today. This is such a muddling that we've left off the sanctified repenting muddling or repenting consideration of the mud and of the sin. We've just given ourselves over to it. And we've left off what is the greatest gift in response to what we've been given. We've left off prayer. Here's how James described that, and and this is the fruit of it. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. There's desires. You fight in war. You do not have. Have what? Have godly solutions and peace. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 2, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's a no prayerlessness or a, a prayerlessness and there's a perverse prayer life that's going on here. That is in Romans 7. That's first, now you put your name there, first Mitch 1. impious piety, a prayerlessness, a perversity, and our wills are so twisted by this world that wants to bend us to its every delight that that's all we want. Just give me that, really, that's what we live for and die for, and that's what we go out for, and That's how we project ourselves, and it's not about the cross and dying for Jesus and losing your life that you might gain it. No, we've gone the other way. We've said, we're going to gain our life. Because this Christianity thing about losing your life, oh, that's not going to make us happy. Beloved, Even the world will say what a tangled web you weave when first you practice to deceive. 
What a muddy mess we make when first and on and on we practice to love the mud. The selfishness, and it shows wars and fightings arise. Opinions take the place of the truth. Our quest for truth and communion and what God wants takes a back seat to our self-justification. We talk about justification by faith alone, and we wish it were self-justification by my arguments alone. It's all backwards. And I'm right there, beloved, with you in the sin seat. First Mitch 1, whatever you want to call it. Write a new Bible. Well, beloved, there was, in fact, and this is so, so clearly the case that it just affects all of our life. Martin Luther's wife, Katie, she dressed in mourning, showed up at the breakfast table, I imagine, one morning. Time of the Reformation, Katie, the rib of Luther, he would say, my rib. And Luther says, what are you, what are you mourning about? And Katie said, someone, someone died. Someone died, Luther, Martin. And Luther said, who? And she said, Marty, Martin, you're so depressed. God died. God died. Must be. Now that's basically the problem of our forgetting what we have and what God promises and the presence of God. God is dead to us. We're joyless. We're without a rudder, we think, in all the decisions of life. Because of our own belief. It's the practical death of God in our life. Oh, beloved. Thank God he's not dead. And when we act like he's dead, he lives. Long live God. And when we're faithless, he's faithful. And when we disgrace him and religion, he's still the God of grace. And look. And after all the muddling and the, and the meddling and so on that we do, there's this great big but, but he gives more grace. That's the word in your life. But he gives more grace, and, and I see it here. I see it in the congregation. The elders see it in this congregation. We're growing, beloved. And the first way you can tell it is there's more grace here today than there was 12 years ago when we began. Not necessarily more people, but more grace. More grace for humble sinners. More grace for the preacher, that it grows, and you can tell it. And we're growing through the ministry of the Word of God. And 
And we're growing to be more like Jesus. Now that's a power. And when we sin and we do, there's more grace and God saying, I forgive you. And God saying through us that he forgives us when we say, I'm sorry, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And look, the wars and the fightings, they come when we muddle things, but the peace of God comes when God gives more grace and resists the proud and reminds the proud true believers that they're nothing and then they, they just fall apart. If pride, by the way, comes before a fall, grace comes just before you fall apart and you're nothing anymore. That's a good falling apart. So there's less of you. As Isaiah, when he beheld the holy God, I was dismantled, he said. I was taken apart. I was as a dead man. My building, my edifice, my kingdom was taken apart, and I was known for all the I that I am, which is a nothing. And then I knew God for the God that he is. All over again. And what happens is in this wonderful God that we have who gives us to have and he wants us to have even more is that there's a submission that's worked. Therefore, submit to God, a resisting of the devil and a fleeing from devilish things and a drawing near to God and a cleansing of hands for sinners. And that's verse 8 and following, a purifying of the hearts. And, and then all of this in verse 9 and 10, what's going on there? Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to, to gloom and so on. What's going on there, beloved, is the turning around of the whole life of a sinner. You were laughing at this, now you're going to cry about it. You were crying about this, now you're going to laugh about it. You were living for this, and now you're going to die to that. And everything was about you, and everything was about what you think you have just by a check. Or just because you have certain talents. Your whole life changes. And beloved, God wants us today to have our whole life changed and filled with him. So that we are less and God is more. And Jesus is our all in all. And all the praise once again to God. You're the haves by the grace of God. Pray to God, please, God, may I have some more. May I truly grow. And may I be a witness even to those who may not have anything. Though they have the whole world, they're losing their soul. And I could show them that there is a plenitude in the grace of God for the worst of sinners. Praise God. Receive it. Believe in Show it on the ground and show it every aspect of your life. Amen.